Hi everyone, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo, I'm the author of the film review website Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 written reviews, including films of the 1980s, 70s, 60s, and earlier than that, all the way up through today at Quipster.net. That's Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Today I'm going to be looking at the second in a three-part series of films that are not necessarily related to each other except for the fact that they have a man who falls in love with a woman of fantasy. We had Xanadu last week, Mannequin this week, from 1987, the comedy fantasy that was made for about $6 million and made about seven times that at the box office. So a pretty big hit for its era. It's a PG-rated film. There's some violence, some sensuality, and language. I found it very risque for a PG-rated film at a time when PG-13 would be the norm. I think it would probably get a PG-13 today because PG has become a little bit more chaste from the people who actually rate those films. So take that for what it's worth. Andrew McCarthy and Kim Cattrall are the main stars of this film. Meshach Taylor, James Spader, Estelle Getty, and G.W. Bailey get supporting roles. The director is Michael Gottlieb, who also co-writes the screenplay along with Edward Rugoff. Now, Mannequin was a big hit. If you lived in the 1980s, you probably ended up seeing this, either in its theatrical run or probably on home video. It really took off there. This film, no doubt, was greenlit because there was a popular romantic comedy fantasy that came out the year before called Splash. You know, I did Xanadu last week in review form. This one seems like a very obvious one to choose in terms of a follow-up here because this one really resembles Xanadu in many ways. If you thought that the 1980 roller disco musical needed less songs and more bubblegum romance, if that's even possible, I guess you would want to watch Mannequin. In terms of comparing Mannequin to Xanadu, we have the same wayward career guy who's a frustrated artist. You have a magical muse of sorts who helps him find his hidden art. There's a dilapidated business that gets a little pizzazz through her magic. There's art deco design styles. There are slickly styled segues. There's this romance between a normal man and a woman of magic that seems doomed by her extraordinary nature. And coincidentally, both films are non-credited remakes of Hollywood films of the late 1940s. Xanadu, a remake of Down to Earth. Mannequin, while often compared to Pygmalion, lifts the basic plot from a 1948 film called One Touch of Venus, an Ava Gardner film. While I'm one of a select number of critics who champion Xanadu, as you've heard last week, as an infectiously entertaining musical that failed to find an audience at the time of its release, I'm firmly with the majority of film critics with Mannequin who view it as an insubstantial movie that mystifyingly became a lucrative hit with the general public, especially once it hit home video markets. Kind of a background to the film, I won't delve into too deeply, but this was a film that was created and crafted through a lot of market research that determined what it was that young women wanted to see in a movie, and they tried to inject a lot of that into the film, and and it ended up working, like I said, seven times its production budget at the box office. 
Andrew McCarthy, although not really a star, not really a leading man at the time, a lot of women did find him attractive, and that's why he was cast as Jonathan Switcher, who is this well-meaning but unlucky guy who keeps losing jobs because he just so happens to have a screw loose. He's lost in this romanticized world of wanting to be an artist, even though his job expects quick and consistent production. Luck finally comes his way when he impresses the owner of a struggling upscale department store in Philadelphia, played by Estelle Getty, enough for her to give him a job on the bottom as the stock boy of that department store. Soon after, he meets Emmy, so-called Emmy, that's her nickname, Kim Cattrall playing Emmy. She is a mannequin that he created with her inspiration, we learn a little bit later. This mannequin is basically possessed by the essence of a woman of ancient Egyptian origin that back in the ancient days beseeched the gods to save her from an unwanted arranged marriage from a dealer of camel dung. For some reason, Emmy immediately takes a liking to the only man who can see her in flesh and blood form. Everybody else sees her as a mannequin. This really encroaches into the bounds of a galmatophilia, which is the romantic or maybe even sexual desire to be with a statue or a mannequin or what have you. The two engage in a romance that sees her helping with the very artistic mannequin displays in the store windows, which draw in the crowds to the department store and makes the store a sensation once again. Unfortunately for them, a rival department store isn't liking the decrease in their business in their stores, so they ask to out the man who's having this sexual affair with what they see as nothing but a wooden mannequin. And so there's the premise. You can pretty much tell where it's going to go from there. Although this is a fantasy film through and through, where Mannequin ultimately fails as a lasting piece of entertainment is in its inability to transcend its story to be anything out of the ordinary on its own. There's predictability here. It's the major detraction. Practically everything you see in the film is what you expect from the moment the premise is laid out. Kim Cattrall has her trademark sex appeal going for her. That certainly helps in the gratuitous eye candy that accompanies her frequent wardrobe changes, sometimes very little wardrobe. But outside of this, Cattrall's role isn't much of a challenge for someone of her talent. Emmy's only role in life is to be any lonely guy's fantasy. She merely exists for the pleasure of her man. She delivers kisses when he wants, companionship when he needs it, fulfillment of any other urges that may arise. You get the picture. Despite being kind of male-oriented in its premise, young female audiences were the ones that were targeted by the advertisements, and many of that audience readily ate this one up, even with the limiting role of the female protagonist to basically a sex object. She is literally an object throughout most of this film, while the other contender for Jonathan's heart, his girlfriend Roxy, is the object of constant sexual harassment at nearly every turn from just about every other male in this film. I would gather that being released on Valentine's Day weekend in 1987 made it the date movie of choice for many couples, even though its notions of male-female relationships seems exceedingly one-sided. Andrew McCarthy, prior to this film, enjoyed some popularity in the mid to late 80s, of course, Pretty in Pink being notable. But while many find him attractive and interesting enough as an actor to find watchable, I do think that this is the kind of material that doesn't really suit him well. He has an inability to seem like a typical Joe Schmo. It makes him come across as sometimes very psychotic, especially in his crazy eyes that he has on display. And even if we believe that none of what's happening is his fervent imagination, we still get the feeling that he probably needs some sort of adjustment to get him to mesh with the real world himself. You can add James Spader to the miscast list. He labors to act comical in his role as one of the main heavies. He has this very geeky hairstyle, very weird mannerisms, but unfortunately for the film, he's not that funny despite all of that mannered style. This would be the second of three consecutive films in which Andrew McCarthy and James Spader would star in together. I mentioned Pretty in Pink. They were in that together. 
They were also in less than zero later on this same year. So some laughs could be had with Meshach Taylor's role as a benevolently flamboyantly gay co-worker named Hollywood Montrose. However, he does get entirely too much screen time for a role that ends up rather useless to the main plot at large. As I mentioned, Mannequin's a very heavily market-researched film. It would go on to make that budget back many times over, even earned an Academy Award nomination, if you can believe it, for Best Song, Starship's Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now. As far as I'm concerned, you can add having to hear that song to the list of reasons why one shouldn't bother sticking around to the end credits where it plays. I'm not a Starship fan, sorry. So unless you're nostalgic for the cheesiest of cheesy of 1980s films, you probably would do well to avoid even the opening credits of this momentary lapse of judgment on the part of movie-going audiences in early 1987, although that animated opening sequence is kind of one of the highlights of the film. That's not saying a lot, though. Like the film's premise, Mannequin is an artificial entity. It's constructed solely for the premise of selling a consumer product through objectifying displays. So I'm sorry for people who are listening to this episode who really wanted to hear a very embracing review of Mannequin because I know that a lot of people probably have fond memories of watching this, especially if they were quite young at the time that they saw this throughout the 1980s. But I don't know. This is a film that hasn't really stood the test of time. It's not really a film that has really been revived for a number of years, even though it was a big hit, enough to actually garner a sequel in 1991, Mannequin 2 on the Move, supposedly one of the worst sequels ever made, at least at that time. So... Luckily, it's in the 90s, so I have an excuse as to why I don't need to watch Mannequin 2 or review it here. So two stars on my scale means I do think that this is a film that's lacking something that is very critical that would keep it from being a recommendable movie for me. And what it's missing really here is something original, something different, something beyond just the premise that would get you in. I think if the comedy were hitting, it probably would be much more tolerable. It's really a dumb slapstick movie. This is not the kind of movie that I feel, when people think of great films of the 1980s, this is not going to be among the first, second, third, or maybe even fourth group of films that they think of. It may be something that people fondly remember just because they watched it when they were young and for nothing more. So two stars is what I give Mannequin. We're going to continue on with the film next week. To finish out this trilogy of Dream Girlfriends, a film that I've already mentioned at the beginning of this review, and that is the Tom Hanks, Daryl Hannah film, Splash. Coincidentally, Kim Cattrall was one of the people that they were considering to play the mermaid in Splash, but she lost out to Daryl Hannah for that film, interestingly enough. But we're going to watch that next week and see how well that film holds up. Until next time, thanks everyone for listening and joining me on this journey around the world in 80s movies.